Ladies and gentlemen, I don't seem to I, I don't I don't seem to remember that it was remember the member the sixth of November because as far as I knew it was the fifth. But as you can hear, I'm hearing fireworks. I don't know how that works, ladies and gentlemen. Anyone's public can be shot the bring the noise. From the Fifth Element Podcast Network, I am Charlie Taylor, and this is What's Good. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you all had a good week. Um, so, yeah, it's the 6th of November as I record here, and uh, there's fireworks going on now. Hmm. Seems people don't get, don't quite get the memo. See, it's funny how it's funny how fireworks work, right? Fireworks work, and just doing fireworks. I, I, I just find it interesting because, you know, when it comes to Halloween... Uh, at least you guys stick it to the day of, you know. What I mean, uh, you know. Obviously, there's all the all the all the memes that come through throughout October, and you know, people prepping for Halloween itself. And you know, some people might need to go work the next on that same day, so and they need to, uh, uh, I don't know. Most of the time, they'd need to um, go and do Halloween on the 28th or the 29th or the 30th. You know, what I mean, I can understand that. But mostly, but mostly you do it on the thirty first, and I highly respect that. And as as a, as a post Halloween report, no knocks on my door. Ha ha! I love that. I love that because, as you guys know, bun Halloween, bun Halloween. Like if you guys want to dress up, go dress up. Like you know, you don't you don't need Halloween to do that. You really don't. Halloween is the most pointless holiday on the calendar. It makes no sense to me. If you guys want to dress up, go dress up. You know, there's a, there's a concept called cosplay. There's a concept called drag, you know. <laughs> these are all things that you can do f- 365 days a year, 24/7. If you really want to, I know a lot of people that do cosplay. Okay, if you wanted to go do that, go do that. But don't give me this bullshit about Halloween. Okay, don't, don't, don't act. Don't give me this faux importance that you guys have given. But anyway, hope you hope you're doing well. Uh, my week's been pretty, pretty okay, pretty productive. Um, really, a really solid week. A uh, lot of, a uh, lot of work done. Uh, a couple, well, yesterday was the birthday of the Fifth Element, and uh, you know I'm not going to give too much words on it. I've already, you know, I already wrote about it uh, on the socials anyway. But um, yeah, man, it's the third birthday, and obviously in this past year, uh, I've kind of started the podcast arm from scratch. Uh, it's going to be Waskid's birthday in the first birthday as a podcast in about in, f- in a couple of weeks. So obviously, look out for that. Um, <laughs> I say look out for that, like I'm going to do something special for it. <laughs> I'm just going to do an episode like usual. <laughs> I don't have the tools or the time to do something special. But <laughs> but you never know. Um, but yeah, you know, it's it's it's, it's cool. Uh, the fact that I've been doing uh, The Fifth Element itself for three years is kind of, uh, kind of a good... Uh, a good marker for myself. I really, I've really enjoyed the evolution I've done for myself. And I think a friend asked me... Uh, what's the you know three best things, uh, or the three things you've kind of uh, learnt or or realised about uh, your 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 growth or something like that? Just three things you've noticed in the three years that you've had the development. I was like, well, one of them uh, specifically, and I'll say it here is that I'm not just a writer anymore. I'm re- I'm really not. Like uh, I'm I'm obviously doing all these podcasts. I've got three in the under the belt, and between me and you guys, just gonna 
get up to the mic correctly. There might be a fourth. There might be a fourth. Might might be might be so maybe maybe we'll we'll see. It might be a fourth. It's not nothing's in the oven yet, but between me and you guys, there might be a fourth. Might you never know. But anyway, um, so yeah, considering I've done all that, the whole podcast network in a space of a year is. I want to pat myself on the back for it because I think it's a really good achievement for myself, um, and I, I'm really, I'm really happy with how they've all come come out. Um, obviously, uh, insert a source episode three is dropping uh, tomorrow, uh, as a, as this episode drops. So you know, so obviously that's uh, going along smoothly um, in terms of episodes, and obviously digging digits is uh, uh, going for stride for stride, and what's good is what's good. You know, I keep. I'll just uh, this, uh, this is probably the easiest one to do for myself because obviously I just uh, you know talk to talk by myself. It only rec- in- includes me and only requires me uh, to look up some news items every every uh, you know every few days. So it's not that hard for me. But you know, and then people, uh, a couple of uh, a friend actually came up to me. Uh, well, don't don't say came up to me like physically, but uh, hit me up and said like uh, I'm. Because uh, they have a podcast themselves, and uh, they asked me about, or just like admired the fact that I have the consistency, and I've been, you know, doing this for nearly a year now, and pretty much non-stop, other than that one week that I didn't do what's good, you know. So um, it really is, I guess, something that I realized. Uh, the other thing I realized is probably one of the three was like, uh, I have a consistency that not many people have, and you know, that's just a matter of. That's only honestly just because I'm matter of I have a lot of time in my hands. <laughs> That's the truth. Yeah, to be honest, I have nothing else to do. Um, so yeah, it's just it's just it's just something how I fill my time, and I really enjoy doing it. So you know, so it's always a plus. But anyway, um, soppiness aside, it's not even soppy, but just reflection aside. Uh, happy birthday to the fifth element, and uh, may it continue on for for years for years to come. Here to another three years. Cheers. Uh, I hope you guys have a drink pause and get a drink and then have a drink with me <laughs> but anyway uh we shall get into the show itself formatted before we begin we have the email we have the twitter we have the ig we also have the facebook as well thanks for everybody for listening thanks for your support all of these uh for nearly a year now uh for your nearly a year now and if you joined on this particular episode which is episode 50 shit <sighs> episode 50 yeah half a century nice but anyway, yeah, if, you, if, you, if you're here now or here with episode one, I highly appreciate you and thanks for listening. Uh, but without further and without further ado, let the beat drop. Let's get into the show. In a week where South Africa beat England to win their third Rugby World Cup. Um, you know, I'm not a rugby person. I really am not. <laughs> I, just, I don't watch any games. Um, I'm I'm not clued up on it at all. Um, you know, it's not my it's not my skis. But um, it's, it was quite interesting looking at the aftermath of the game itself and the fact that South Africa won. And uh, you know, uh, it's obviously their third third World Cup, and uh, it was the first time with a black captain. And I, I, you know, I kind of thought that was just like the news being the news and just overhyping things. But the way they talk about it, and obviously in South Africa is obviously a, a very important thing. And I guess in my, I guess I have to pull myself back in that case because I generally thought at first it was just like, 
and the news just trying to make something up. But you know, obviously, because South Africa is very, um, very ethnically diverse, but in that case, a very ethnically, um, what's the what's the word? Um, uh, I don't want to say volcanic, but for lack of a better phrase, I'll just say volcanic. It's, it's a bit okay. There's some friction there. You go. let's say let's say that. So it's obviously some friction, some historic friction, some history of volcanic eruptions. Let's say that, and also some friction now, uh, socially, culturally, and the fact that there was a black uh, uh, captain of the national team, and obviously because rugby is so important in South Africa, makes all the more makes it all the more important. And uh, the the interviews that um, I don't know his name, I will I will admit, so apologise for that. But uh, the captains who was talking after interviews afterwards, talking about, you know, how he wasn't even think dreaming about being captain of South Africa, because obviously that's probably back then, that was just such a, you know, such a far fo- far-fetched thought. There's no, there was no point looking at that, you know, there's no point looking to that. At that point, it was just like, you know, looking for food, surviving kind of thing. So uh, the fact that he's there now, and the whole team's there now as one, and, uh, you know, that, that could that could hopefully do well in terms of how sport can change a country so uh, we we shall see how that uh, how that excuse me how that uh, pans out in late in later years uh, Lewis Hamilton seals his sixth what a driver's world championship one off equaling Schumacher's all-time record that is going to be one of the topics of today uh, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Scientists DQ's Nigerian entry for the obviously international award uh, Lionheart for get this drum roll please having too much English dialogue. So you're telling me that a country that her, that was forced to take up English as a uh, as a you know as a, uh, as a as a part of colonialism and Im- now embraces English as one not all but one of their languages you're telling them that because they're not doing it in a native tongue uh, that they don't deserve to be included in the in the decision making. The you disqualified you disqualified for it. Like it would be it'd make more. It would be much more. This would go down much easier if the academy just said, you know, you're out of the shortlist. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because no, not all not all international entries get in. Obviously, so it knocks and they knock it down to probably about five on average. So all you could have done to lose this fanfare, or to lose this backlash, or to not have this backlash, or simply to just not put it in the shortlist. But now you've DQ'd it because it had too much English language? Are you taking the piss? Absolute joke. So, uh, shout out to all the filmmakers that have, um, that have uh, uh, shouted out about this, including Ava DuVernay as well. Um, it's just, it's just silly. It really is just the silliest thing I've heard this week. And uh, also, uh, lastly, uh, J- J- Jacob Rees-Mogg, a boy, uh, apologizes for comments about Grenfell. So, uh, yeah, just just when just when you thought the Tory Party couldn't get more elitist, or Jacob Rees-Mogg himself can get more elitist, apparently uh, the people that were at Grenfell and in that building as it happened in the Tower Fire, they just they just didn't use their common sense. Why didn't I think? Why didn't I think of that? Run out of the building. Yeah. Fuck Jacob Reese Mog bro, just just fuck him. Anyway. Wish I could just show itself. Um and you know what? Since we're talking about politics, let's get into some politics. Cause I found this article 
mad funny. Just, just mad funny. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna give too much um, opinion on it because it's not really worth it. I just found it real funny, and I, f- I feel like it's worth a read. So this is called, uh, this is by uh, Rupert Neat, uh, wealth correspondent for the Guardian. Uh, this is called uh, Super Rich Prepare to Leave UK Within Minutes If Labour Wins Election. Okay, so obviously this comes off the back of the conversation uh, we had last week. Uh, and I was talking about uh, just obviously the general election itself, and uh, I kind of went on tangents, I admit, uh, in, in hindsight. But this one's going to be a bit more focused, as, as you can imagine. So let's get into this right quick, because this, this, is, this, is just, this is just glorious. The super-rich are preparing to immediately leave if, uh, the UK if Jeremy Corbyn becomes Prime Minister, fearing they will lose billions of pounds if the Labour leader does, quote-unquote, go after the wealthy elite with new taxes, possible capital controls, and, clamp down, and a clampdown on private schools. Lawyers and accountants for, UK, for the UK's richest families said they have been uh, deluged with calls from millionaire and billionaire clients asking for help and advice on moving countries, shifting their fortunes offshore and making early gifts uh, to their children to avoid the labour leader's ta- threat to labour leader's threat to tax all inheritances above 125k. The advisers said a Corbyn-led uh, government was advised as a far greater threat to the wealth and quality of life of the richest one percent. <laughs> then a hard exit. Just, let me just stop. Let me just stop and repeat that. Repeat that sentence. The advisor said a Corbyn-led government was viewed as a far greater threat to the wealth and qu- quality of life. Quality of life to the richest one percent. What kind of oxymoronic bullshit is that? Quality of life. Are you taking the piss? Are you literally joking? What kind of dumb shit is this? What kind of overreactionary, knee-jerk, rich people shit is this? What in the RNP is this? And they ain't ends, but still. <laughs> what in the RP is this? Oh, boy. RPP, rich people problems. What a joke. Anyway, let's get into, let's get into some uh, examples here. So, uh, Jeffrey Todd, uh, a partner at the law firm Boodle Hatfield. Such, oh, such a posh name. Boodle Hatfield. Uh, said many of his clients had already put plans in place to transfer their wealth out of the country within minutes if Corbyn is elected. Quote, Lots of high net worth individuals are worried about having to pay uh, much higher taxes on their wealth and already have prepared, uh, already have already prepared for the possibility of a Corbyn government, he said. Transfers of wealth are already arranged. In many cases, all that is missing is a signature on the contract. There will be plenty of people on the phone to their lawyers in the early hours of 13th of December if Labour wins. Movements of capital to new owners and different locations are already prepared and they are just waiting awaiting final approval, unquote. Dominic Samuelson, chief executive of Cam- Campton Wealth, uh, which advises more than th- uh, 3,500 rich families, uh, said, quote, from the ultra-high net worth perspective, a Labour government under, under Corbyn is a much greater threat to them and their businesses and their wealth than the exit. Oh, guys, guys, can we, can we, can we whip out, can we all collectively whip out um, our, our small, our very, very small violins, it comes with every British birth, it's customary for every Brit to have their own customary uh, engraved small world's smallest violin. We all collectively have one world's smallest violin. Can we all just play it right quick? Whip it out, ladies and gentlemen. 
Let's, let's just give a moment of silence for the rich people that the 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 uh, they're threatened that their life of their quality of life is threatened. Can we get the NSPCC on the phone and just uh, hear up the uh, and just give a couple of uh, adverts for the rich kids that uh, uh, Tim- Timothy. T- <laughs> I don't know the Reese Mogg's kid's name, but there's like 20 of them, so, so hopefully I'll get one of them right. Um, Timothy Reese Mogg is, uh, won't be able to go to private school if Jeremy Corbyn's in government. So please call the NSPCC and be sure to donate and vote Tory. What a joke this is. This is absolutely amazing. This is oh, so glorious. Let's continue. Uh, he claimed uh, Mike Ashley, uh, the billionaire... Oh, uh, wait, sorry. On Thursday, Corbyn singled out five members of the elite uh, that a Labour government would go after uh, in order to rebalance the country. He claimed Mike Ashley, billionaire owner of Sports Direct and Newcastle United, was a, quote, bad boss who exploited his workers through zero-hour contracts. Ashley hit back, telling the Financial Times, quote, Corbyn not o- Corbyn's not only a liar, but clueless. So you don't have zero-hour contracts. Is that, is that what you're telling us? You don't have zero-hour contracts as Sports Direct, yeah? Yeah, you, you have all them... You have uh, dental plans, right-to-work scheme, you have all of that. You have all them benefits, yeah? Holiday pay, you have all of that. Yeah, that's what you're telling me. Yeah, okay, sure. Uh, the Labour leader also named the greedy banker, quote-unquote, Crispin Odie. Crispin. His name's Crispin. God damn. Definitely privileged. Uh, <laughs> the head fund manager who made £220 million betting against a pound... In the run-up to the EU referendum. That's some big short shit. Wow. OD responded by telling the Daily Telegraph, luckily they, Labour, can't even run a campaign, let alone the country. What shots. The others singled out by Corbyn were Jim Ratcliffe, chemicals billionaire, who has left the UK. Oh, well, there you go. Why are we talking about this? He's gone. Fuck off. If you... For the tax-free moniker, I'll, I'll get to my point in a bit. Uh, the Sun and Sunday Times owner Rupert Murdoch and the Duke of Westminster, who has a large uh, central uh, London property empire. <sighs> so let me just stop there and uh, just, just you, you can see, you can see uh, where we, where we're getting, where we're getting in this. It's just funny. I just, I just find this whole thing completely ab- and absolutely laughable. Quality of life, ladies and gentlemen. These these one percenters are talking about their quality of life. Okay, like Corbyn's gonna come through and take all of their money. Is that what is that what we're saying here? Okay, I just find it interesting. So, so you know, I'm not once again. I'm not here to say who you should vote for. Not here for not here for that. I'm not a I'm not a political advisor. Here. I just I'm just giving you funny as shit. Uh, article right here because this makes me crease. Like talking about the super rich, the one percent, and you know, low key. Let's be real, okay? Let's be real here. And this is not based on fact, okay? This, this what I'm going to say is not based on fact, but it's a high assumption that most of them, majority of them, probably don't even pay taxes here. They they probably already do have this uh, uh, all this um, uh, all these offshore accounts and you know uh, residences in other places such as Monaco tax free and all that. They probably do all this shit already. It's not it's, it's not like like they've just suddenly discovered uh, how to how to save money. 
This is like like they haven't discovered how to hoard their cash and not give tax to the UK of which they are citizens of. Let's not act, let's not act like they haven't done these measures already. Okay, saying that Corbyn's gonna uh, the Corbyn's gonna upend their lives is most likely bullshit. They've already done this stuff already. Okay, they're not living in they're not living in the uh, you know uh, I don't know they're not living in Oxfordshire. Uh, just chilling in a mansion with all the, with all their money and happily paying the tax they pay now, right? They're not doing that. They're already doing this offshore thing, already. And this was like, um, and I think today or the couple of days ago was like the anniversary of the uh, of the Panama Papers, or was it? No, not the Panama Papers, the Paradise Papers. I don't know if you remember that, but it's just it's just funny. It's just it just makes it's, this whole thing just makes me laugh. Absolutely chill because to to say to say that a, a a Labour government sure most likely will um, try and make a make a genuine effort to to tax the one percent definitely a, probably most likely a better job than the Tories have done in the past ten years or nine years in government that they have done I don't know the facts and figures on that but I can guess they're going to probably tr- try harder on that front to tax the one percent. Because that's what Labour's supposed to be about, right? You know, in general, it's supposed to be about you know the working man, the unions, and all that. You know, for 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 the bottom for the bottom half, that's what they're supposed to be about. You know, in terms of general ethos, and it's just uh, it, it just it just makes me laugh. It it really does. This whole thing just makes me crease of super rich people bitching and moaning about how the labor how Labour's like doing all this. Uh, like like Jeremy Corbyn's the financial boogeyman is <laughs> an absolute joke. It makes me laugh, and you know what? If Labour do win, I cannot wait for the, for all that hullabaloo about and Mike and my, people like Mike Ashley going. Oh no, he's taking my money! I can't wait for all for all of us to once again. Can we whip him out right quick? Just for the just for the until the music comes in right here, can we just all whip out the small violins for the for the one percent that might get taxed a little bit more than they do now? Na 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 na. Moment of silence for the one percent. You fucking idiots. <laughs> So we now move on to uh, film and TV, and I wanted to talk about a film that um, has obviously been making the rounds in the in, in the in the in in some social circles. Um, this is about Harriet. Uh, so this is obviously the film uh, about uh, Harriet Tubman's biopic, uh, uh, played by well the main character Harriet Tubman is played by Cynthia Revo, uh, directed by I think uh, Cassie Lemons. Um, we did like uh, stuff like Ease by You and Talk to Me. Um, it's been it's been it's been making the rounds in uh, especially black film circles in terms of uh, obviously about Cynthia Revo herself um, and uh, the the circle she has uh, been in before maybe not now but has been in before 
um, talking about, uh, you know, kind of a downgrading African-Americans and uh, and tweeting that kind of stuff and degrading and, and being in a derogatory form. Uh, so in that case, it's obviously been a, it's been a lot of conversation about, uh, obviously, you know, British actors are taking all the American fi- African-American film roles. Harriet Tubman's an American hero and should be played by an American. Da, 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 da. You can imagine the uproar in terms of that, and especially when it comes to someone like Cynthia Revo that hasn't done the best in terms of being dip- diplomatic on that front. Um, while I... You probably... Well, we had this conversation where we talked about, obviously, Spike Lee, and I titled the whole whole of that episode Spike Lee's Ignorant, so you know, clearly I have a strong feeling about that particular conversation. Um, and if you want more on that particular conversation, I advise you to go listen to another podcast called uh, Jamel Hill is Unbothered, a little interview series she does, and uh, find the episode with David the Yellower, um, is obviously uh, in, uh, uh, you know, Selma, and uh, what's, the, what's, the, what's, the, what's the one, Queen of Catway, and there's in uh, plenty of other stuff as well, Nightingale, oh, God, that's a, that's a OP show amazing acting performance there but yeah uh, he's, he's, he's obviously made loads of stuff but um, he gives a really great answer to all of that so if you want a really great answer to all of that kind of stuff go to go go uh, pee that podcast but i don't want to talk about that i want to talk about harriet specifically as a film um so the article i've got here is uh harriet falls prey to the dignity paradox uh, this is written by us uh written by uh soraya nadia mcdonald of the undefeated um and yeah, without further ado, let's get into it. Uh, enslaved is not a personality. That's the major stumbling block with Harriet, the new biopic about Harriet Tubman in theaters Friday, last Friday. Uh, directed by Cassie Lemons and co-written by Lemons and Gregory Allen Howard, Harriet starring Cynthia Revo, so consumed with reverence uh, for the patron saint of Black History Month that it neglects to make her or any of her, the supporting characters around her a real person. Instead, Tubman's fall prey, uh, falls prey to what I call the Dignity Paradox. Harriet is the first feature film about Tubman, who died in 1913 but went unrecognised by Hollywood in the years since. Cecily Tyson starred as Tubman in the 1978 NBC miniseries A Woman Called Moses. Such circumstances create a tremendous amount of pressure on whomever is charged with telling Tubman's story, especially someone aware of the ways that black women have historically been ignored or maligned in major studio projects. But it's possible to overcorrect for the shameful sting associated with, say, Hattie McDaniel in Gone with the Wind. The result is a portrayal that's so safe, so unwilling to take risks, and so earnest in telling its audiences, uh, audience that Tubman was an American hero that it forgets to give the woman a personality. In Harriet, Tubman uh, gets to be determined, psychic, uh, briefly heartbroken, and that's about it. I dare say Tubman got better treatment in an F. Got better treatment in an episode of Drunk History. Uh, the film opens in 1849 with Tubman, Tubman lying in a field on a plantation in Bucktown, Maryland. That was her home. Uh, she was She's in the midst of one of her narcoleptic spells. Tubman was famously hit in the head with a two-pound iron at age 12. Fucking hell. Uh, the result was her sleeping spells. Uh, Lemons revisits uh, the mysticism that made Eve's Bayou such a richly compelling tale in Harriet. She gives uh, Tubman the gift of the sight and depicts her narcoleptic psychic visions with a blue filter, uh, not un- not unlike the one Nate Parker used in The Birth of a Nation, which is not a bad film, by the way. Um, just it's, it's worth a watch. It's not the best film ever, but it's, it's worth a watch. 
um, the script is amazing actually. Uh, when Tubman learns that her owners refuse to grant her, uh, grant her or her yet-to-be-born children their freedom, as a previous owner promised, uh, Tubman decides to run. Her husband John, played by Zachary Mamo, is free. Both are afraid of endangering John's free status, so Tubman sets out alone. Uh, and she's written that same sentence twice, so so Tubman sets out, sets out alone. Where's the editor at for that? Come on. Anyway, uh, she doesn't have a plan other than following the North Star and a series of rivers until she reaches the free state of Pennsylvania. She cannot read nor write. Rather than demonstrating Tubman's cunning intellect, Tubman's many fears, uh, many feats of daring bravery and by the skin of her teeth escapes from slave catchers get explained by woo-woo spirituality. Uh, whenever enemies begin to close in, Tubman magically falls asleep and gets a vision that tells her to take a different route. The dialogue in Harriet consists mostly of important speechifying, not only for Tubman, but also her three black Philadelphia accomplices, William Still, played by Leslie Odom Jr., and Mary Buchanan, played by Jamel, Janelle Monet. Uh, both Still and Buchanan help the refugee Harriet get settled in Philadelphia before she begins making her famous costume trips back to plantations and develops the nickname Moses, of the, slave Moses the Slave Stealer. At one point, Odom launches into a speech about how Congress just passed a Fugitive Slave Act. As still, Odom doesn't really sound like a person either, but a set piece in a fifth grade textbook come to life. The same is true of Monet and Bigger Long, the one-note slave tracker uh, played by Omar J. Dorsey. Were it not for the fact that Arrivo, Odom, Dorsey and Monet have demonstrated their substantial acting bona fides in other productions, one cannot be blamed for assuming that the group might have a future in low-budget, uh, basic cable, prime-time soaps. Oof. That's a line. That's a bar right there. Uh, it's little consolation that the film's white characters come off bland as, as blandly evil and one-dimensional too. Is this what equality looks like? Uh, Harriet Falls' uh, faults are not unique, in fact, they're rather common in the biopic genre, which is littered with films that feel obligated to touch base with every major point of a person's Wikipedia entry, rather than starting with an interesting story and building from there. Ava DuVernay's uh, Selma is a good example of a film that bucks biopic, uh, biopic norms and is all the better for it. She runs headlong into the fact that Martin Luther King Jr. had affairs, uh, that had an effect on his marriage, and she focuses on the march from Selma to Montgomery and the passage of the Civil Rights Act instead of King's entire life from birth to death. In a world that made sense, there would be multiple on-screen works about Tubman, which uh, which would allow for a deep dive into the logistics of the Combahee, Combahee Ferry Raid or Tubman's time as a Union spy, or a closer examination of the 100-mile route she repeatedly took guiding her enslaved brother and sister from Maryland Maryland, Maryland, Maryland. It's weird how it's, you, when I when I get just I'm just gonna stop here just for, just for a second. I, I find it funny how when I see Maryland, I say Maryland, um, but when I see the cookies, I say Maryland. It's so weird, isn't it? I don't know why I do that. Is do you say Maryland or Maryland or Maryland uh, to make it really American? I say Maryland. I, I try and find a good middle, but I, I don't know, it's, it's a bit weird, I don't know why I do it like that. Anyway, brother and sister from Maryland to Philadelphia. In the most disappointing turn of the film, the Combahee Ferry Raid is treated as a code, coda, uh, rather than a major or inspiring point in Tubman's life. It's on screen for maybe two minutes. Among the many questions Harriet leaves on answers, what on earth were those poor souls eating as they were on the run from trackers and safe catches? Uh, I, I don't want to stop there, but I'll... <laughs> I might have to. 
and I'm willing a bit, but I just want to continue finishing the sentence. Adrenaline is a powerful chemical, but no one is going 100 miles on foot without food. Freedom alone does not supply calories. Okay, I want to stop there because uh, the the article has uh, got a few more paragraphs, and I'd rather not just you know get too bogged down. That 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 particular paragraph just reminds me of every freaking time uh, me and my mum watch a film and something like that, which is you know I don't want to say it's not a genuine question because it is a genuine question. Like you know if you're doing all these, uh, you know if you if you travel a hundred miles, you have to. Eat. It makes sense, but nobody nobody's checking for that. Nobody's checking for that. If you're trying to find faults in a film, which clearly Miss McDonald is trying to do here, then fine, you found a fault. Well done, right? But she, but, but my mum did this when we watched the, the the best example I like to give is 20, when we watched Twenty Four Legacy, right? Uh, Corey Hawkins, obviously reboot of Twenty Four. Um, so you know, if you don't know Twenty Four and the concept of it, obviously every season is. Uh, covered in 24 hours, that's the point of 24. Um, so in this season, uh, obviously, Corey Hawkins' character is just uh, doing FBI shit. I don't know, is it FBI or CIA? I don't know, agent stuff. And he's going rogue and he's got some people on the inside, you know, stuff like this. And he's trying to catch some terrorists, da 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 da, you know, regular macho American stuff, right? On the I don't know, like eighth or ninth episode, so like late in the night of the of the you know series arc. My mum asks, does he ever eat? <laughs> and I'm like, okay, sure, maybe. Okay, mum, you are perfectly right. Yes, he should have eaten by now. But do you want to see that? Do you want to see him go to Burger King and cop a Whopper right quick and eat that for five minutes? Do you want to see that? No, you want to see the freaking story that we're here to watch. Like, you know, I understand what Mr. McDonald's on, on about in this particular paragraph, but calm down chill, let's just chill, let's just, can we not just, can we not just enjoy this story for what it is, you know, I, I, I just don't like it when people do them kind of stuff, it's just, it's just unnecessary, you might be right, and I'm not saying you're wrong, but it's just unnecessary, just, just, just take the film for what it is, yes, she should have eaten, yes, they should have eaten, of course, duh, but what do you want them to do, sit down and eat, do you want to see that for five minutes, what do you want, you know what I mean, it, it just, it just doesn't make sense. It's like a question that... It's a question that, mate, while you're right, do you want to see that? Do you really want to? Probably not. But anyway, uh, the whole thing is uh, kind of interesting, and uh, uh, the article itself is kind of interesting, and uh, I really want to watch this film for what it... just for what it is. Because um, I, I, I personally enjoy watching biopics. Um, I, I'm kind of... You know, I, I just enjoy that... I enjoy the concepts. I I really do enjoy the concept, and I do understand why you know a film like Selma is so good, and uh, why stuff like you know stuff like Harriet is getting not critically panned but criticised, um, whether it be irrationally or rationally. Um, there was also a great breakdown by uh, Shadow and Act, which covers literally everything behind this film, also including the Cynthia Erivo stuff. Uh, her 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 um. Uh, what's the word? Uh, I guess a friction with African Americans or the casual African African American, um, and all of that, and it also breaks down the film in very very great detail. 
but I feel like I feel like um, I feel like because Harriet Tubman is such a uh, you know in McDonald's words patron saint figure in Black History Month and is constantly talked about in terms of Amer- African American Black History. I feel like they wanted more from this. If you're an African American, you probably wanted more from this. You wanted more care done with this. And I completely understand. I really do. Like, if you're what, um, yeah, say if it was like a biopic of someone you really loved, you know, the Bohemian Rhapsody, for example, right? A lot of people love that film. And obviously, it got Oscar noms and all that stuff. And Rami Malek got mad awards for it, right? But there were problems with that particular film. Particularly the editing. Editing is shoddy. My God, it's disgusting, the editing. Um, so, that's not the best example, because obviously the music itself is well done, um, as far as I know. From, I haven't seen it personally. I've seen clips and stuff like that, but I haven't actually sat down and see it. But for most of the people I've asked about it, i.e. my mum and a couple of mates, they, they they like it, and they think it does the film, it does Queen Justice, which is good. Um and I like the film 42, which uh, covers another African-American uh, highly touted figure, Jackie Robinson, who obviously broke the color barrier in the MLB in baseball. Um, I really enjoyed that film. I really did. But there were a lot of people in the African-American community that didn't really like it that much. They weren't triggered by it in the t- in, in the way that um, Cynthia Revo has done with uh, Harriet here. And that's and and that's a lot of um and I just want to say I'm while I'm joking about that particular tab uh, tidbit, um it's very overblown, super overblown. But anyway, um some people didn't like it. Some people didn't like Forty Two because they think it didn't do Jackie Robinson justice. And I'm like, cool, I I can understand that. But for a person that's not you know deeply connected to Jackie Robinson, because I'm not, you know, <laughs> I'm a black British kid and I, I you know I know about baseball. I don't watch it religiously. I keep up in in terms of uh, podcasts, but other than that, not really. And um, yeah, so if you're not connected to it in that way, you're not gonna like it. Um, and that's probably why Selma did so well because obviously it did well with African Americans. They thought this is a great depiction. Well done, David Duvernay. Well done, David Yellowway. Um, so yeah, it, it's very hit and miss. And clearly, Harriet, for most people in in America, is a miss. And that's a bit unfortunate, I admit. But, you know, this doesn't mean there can't be other Harriet films. You know? Just because a film about this person has been made does not mean someone else, a completely different set of people, can't make a either TV series or another film or a short film or whatever. Whatever you want to do, go do it. Animation, why not? Fuck it. You know, just if you want to go do it, Go do it. Go do Harriet Tubman justice in the way you think, uh, in the way you think she deserves, in the way that you think Harriet, in this particular film's case, did not do. So, while I still want to see the film for for myself and make my own conclusions, I can understand why uh, African Americans are not are very lukewarm on this particular um, first time in this case. Uh, uh, and long time and long awaited time uh, to finally do this particular bias. So we move on to sports and 
told you I'm talking about Hamilton, and I'm going to talk about Hamilton. So, if you didn't watch the US Grand Prix, uh, there was a Mercedes 1-2, Valtteri Bottas won the race from pole, uh, but Lewis Hamilton came back from, I think it was like fifth to uh, to achieve second place, and lock up the championship, because he's the player plane. And he's now has six titles, and he is one above uh, Fangio, and now one behind, equaling Michael Schumacher's seven world championships. And I've been saying this since uh, since the fifth championship, future GOAT. And now that he's gotten sixth, I'm just going to give it to him, to be honest, because I'm just bet- I'm, I'm low-key betting on the fact that he's going to get seven and maybe eight. I really believe he may... He, he, I really believe he can get eight. I don't... I said this at the start of the F1 season um, on this podcast. I said, as a, as a prediction, I guess, I said... Um, you know, Mercedes is going to do it again. They're going to get the drivers and the constructors. And lo and behold, they did. And what did I say when I made that particular, you know, not hot take of a prediction, but a prediction nevertheless? What did I say? Give me a reason to pick someone else. And I'm going to say that for Lewis Hamilton in terms of getting number seven, number eight, and beyond. Give me a driver right now that has the that has the car and has the driving ability to top Hamilton right now. Exactly. <laughs> you can't right now. Bottas is close. I will admit, he is very, very close. And he gave a better fight than I thought he'd give this season. Um, but still, we still got about two races left and Hamilton's already locked up. So, you know, it's not exactly like, it's not exactly like it was to the wire, you know? So, this is so this particular article I want to just get at really uh, um really briefly, is um, is by Lawrence Barreto of uh, F1.com, Formula1.com, and it's, called, it's just an opinion piece, uh, Why Hamilton's Sporting Greatness uh, Transcends Formula1. So he, he, gets, he starts off by getting into, obviously into the um, historical aspect in terms of F1, and uh, you know, his raw talent, his speed, and you know, his work ethic, da 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 but he also gets into other sports. So talking about on an international level, uh, on a on a national level, sorry, how many British athletes in sport have dominated in an international sport in the way ha- uh, Hamilton has, and he goes off to give some names. So let's get into it. Uh, British rower Sir Red uh, Sir Steve Redgrave won gold medals at five Olympics, a period of sixteen years at the top level. That requires incredible resilience and sacrifice, as Hamilton has so valiantly displayed. And like the British racer, Redgrave had help not only from his crewmates, but also a GB rowing setup that has now been the most uh, the dominant global force for two decades. Chris Froome uh, won four Tour de France, uh, the world's most grueling cycle race, and numerous other Grand Tours. But again, like two uh, like fellow two world legends, Sir Chris Hoy, his success is specifically focused, and his dominant hasn't lasted as long as Hamilton's. Mo Farah, British great uh, Britain's uh, great. Uh, greatest middle distance runner ever. Right there with Hamilton in dominant stakes, the Britain winning four Olympic gold medals and six world titles, but in terms of most successful of all time in his field, based on pure pace, he's only 16th overall in 10,000 metres and in 10,000 metre list without having broken a single world record. Uh, Andy Murray, three Grand Slams, Olympic medal, rightly lauded at home for his achievements in tennis, most impressive era. Hamilton, but Hamilton is more on the level of Murray's rivals. Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, global superstars who have proved their greatness time and time again. Okay, so superstar sprinter Usain Bolt. 
phenomenon who won first UK uh, UK first Olympic gold in Beijing in and then world record time with this shoelace untied. I, f- I totally forget that he had his shoelace untied. What a fucking G move that is. He probably didn't even mean to do it. Or maybe he did. Regardless, imagine if he tripped up. That would be the most embarrassing thing. But pff, I don't know. It's still a G move to me. To me, It's a boss move. Um, he went on to weigh eight, mid- eight gold medals across three successive Olympics. Unprecedented dominance in the sport. And he did it by making it, his, uh, make it look as if he wasn't trying. Yes, he played hard away from the track. Uh, but behind the scenes, he trade harder than anyone else. Hamilton does the same. Sure, he might have headed. Uh, he might have headed straight to New York after his title triumph in Austin and travel between races, but that doesn't mean he's cutting himself far, uh, from F1. Far from it. He's in constant communication with his team of engineers. Even now, the title is over. Uh, whether it's a WhatsApp or a phone call, the strive for perfection continues. His next target is to win the final two races, which will make it 12 wins in the season, breaking his previous best by one. Serena Williams. Dominated the women's tennis scene for close to two decades, 39 Grand Slam titles, 20 which, uh, 23 of which came in singles. Federer said her achievements are enough to earn the accolade of the greatest tennis player of all time. That's quite cool, but the Swiss would know. The American fought through the ranks with her sister and coached by her dad rather than the backing of a federation or big sponsor. Hamilton's path, very similar. Father working more than one job and driving around the country to events. They were different to uh, they were different to the typical elite sports person. Both have had to grind it out to get the opportunity and then make the most of it. They've both had to work hard to develop a fan base, but their determination has brought their respective sports to new audiences, and they've emerged role models and trendsetters. How many athletes can say the same? Tiger Woods certainly can. Golf's biggest star. 15 majors, free short of Jack Nicholas. Perhaps what is most impressive about the American is the way he has overcome a string of injuries and associated surgeries which required reinvention of his swing and problems in his personal life that saw, uh, that saw his form and world ranking take a nosedive into obscurity. Hamilton has overcome equally big challenges, including a drop in form after nearly winning the title in his, f- in his first year. We forget this, right? Let me just stop there. We forget that he was in for a championship on day one season one he was one point of winning a world championship in his rookie season do you understand how much of a beast you have to be for that also his teammate was fernando fucking alonso who won two back-to-back world championships a year before two years before technically do you understand how daunting that must be Unfreaking believable. You think Alexander Albon is daunted by Max Verstappen right now? Imagine Lewis coming in F1 as a fresh face, a rookie, immediately uh, in contention for championships, and his teammates Fernando Alonso, the be- one of the best pure drivers in the world at that time, and probably still now. Unfreaking believable. You, you, those 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 two seasons were probably the most impressive seasons I've ever seen. Okay, so and you know obviously there's many more championships uh, after that, but considering he did that at the start of his career is absolutely mind blowing. Absolutely mind blowing. Put George Russell in the same car right now. Put Lando. Put Alexander Albon in the same car right now. I guarantee you won't be getting champ- world championship results. And no disrespect to Russell, Nando, or Albon. They are amazing drivers and they're going to have a long career uh, in, in F1. I hope so anyway. But they're not Hamilton. Like, 
Sorry, I can't, I can't give that off. I can't give that away. Anyway, uh, Simone Biles is another example. He also gives uh, Floyd Mayweather. Uh, footballing uh, geniuses, Messi, Ronaldo. So yeah, what do you want? What do you want? What more do you want in terms of putting Lewis Hamilton in the pantheon of one of the greatest sports persons we have ever had in the UK? Tell me different, please tell me different. You could say Steve Redgrave, fine, cool. I I completely give it to you. I fucking hate Rowan. <laughs> I tried it a couple times as a you. Not a fan. No. Not a fan. That that is an arduous task, right? But then again, so is mo- so is driving a fucking F one car. So <laughs> you know what I mean? And I don't want to get into semantics of like you know what sport is harder, but in terms of dominance, in terms of records, in terms of influence, in terms of making the sport accessible to other people, nobody else has done those four things, and then some. I think you guys, um, I think most people when it comes to, you know, sports fans in general here in the UK, um, they like to shit on Hamilton, I think, and, and put him down, you know, simply because, well, apart from, uh, you know, the reason that, you know, I will hint at, but I won't bother giving because let's not have that conversation, apart from that, I don't think you guys, you clearly just don't like his vibe. You clearly don't like his vibe. But I don't know why, I don't know why you can't separate sporting achievement from, I don't know, his sometimes passive-aggressive IG stories. Or, I don't know, I don't know what other things irk you. I really don't understand. Oh, that he tries to be positive on IG? Fucking hell, sorry. What do you want him to do? Not be positive? Be negative? Fuck the world. What do you, <laughs> do you want him to be like one of those those sad boy rappers that, you know, claim life is shit even though they have like millions of pounds and have and you know could do whatever the fuck they want now? Do you want him to be like that? No. He does he has his own fashion line and and guys, 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 guys. If you don't like his fashion line, or if you don't like his social media, do you know what you can do? Not follow it. There you go. Boom. Not follow it. Oh my god. I've just I've have I have I have I have I have I cleared up your lives right there? I've just have I enlightened you guys? Just don't follow. Just don't do it. So I don't I don't really understand because you know I can do that for many people I don't like. I don't like Drake. But I can really understand the influence that he has had in this past decade. I can really understand it. Okay? I mean, I don't like his... I don't like his music, to be honest. I don't like his music. But I can understand his popularity. And I can understand his cultural significance to uh, to, to uh, North American culture. Okay? I can, I can understand that. You know? You might not like Cristiano Ronaldo, because he's a pretty boy. Okay? But you can't deny he's a fucking beast on the football field. Okay? You can, you can, I, I, I can, I see you guys. I see you guys put aside your bitching about someone's looks or you don't like the look of him or you don't like what he does off the field. Na, 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 na. You can put all, you, you, you manage to put all that aside, all that aside for many other sports stars. But you just can't seem to do it with Lewis Hamilton. And I, and, you know, pass 
the reason that I won't get into, I don't understand. I really don't. So, Lewis Hamilton, and and I'm going to say this, I'm going to say this for me. You don't have to agree, but I'm going to say it for me. Lewis Hamilton is one of, may not be the, I want to, I'd like to, you know, just think about it some more in terms of historical significance, but for me, he is one of the greatest sports per- people we have ever had in this little island of that we call Great Britain. And if you don't agree with that, you are either fucking naive, or you just can't get past the fact that he has a fashion life. <laughs> Or the reason you know what I'm talking about, okay? Other than that, I don't understand why you can why you can't put it aside. But anyway, rant aside, I'm a chill. <sighs> Lewis Hamilton's go. Ah, oh, damn it. <laughs> and finally. Uh, in life, I want to talk about uh, this particular editorial that I saw in The Guardian, and uh, it was kind of an interesting story that I didn't even hear anywhere else. I'm not saying The Guardian is the greatest place ever, but I didn't see it anywhere else. I didn't see this news item anywhere else. Um, so I wanted to read this editorial, um, simply because of the significance it has uh, in terms of education. You know, I, I'm constantly trying to talk about education and our education as a, as a country, and also Black History as well. So, in considering it was Black History Month yet last month, you know, it doesn't have to be a month, ladies and gentlemen. It could be all year round if you really want it to be. <laughs> and I really want it to be. So, I'm going to try and do that. Um, so, this is um, the Guardian view on the history of slavery, much to be learned. And, uh, well, it will explain in this particular editorial. So, I'll just get into I'll just dive. I'll just dive right into it if you shout American Dad for that reference. Uh, speaking at the British Museum last week, Lonnie G. Bunch III, the founder, uh, the founder director of the U.S. National Hit Museum of African American History and Culture, spoke of the duty of museums to show the public, quote, not what they want to remember, but what they need to remember, unquote. Mr. Bunch was formally installed on Friday as the 14th Secretary of the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, where he is in charge of 19 museums, 21 libraries, a zoo, and a number of research centers, the first African-American to hold his key post in the U.S.'s cultural world. His success at the African-American Museum has laid down a powerful marker of what museums can be. His vision for, uh, for was for a place where complexity is embraced, where unpleasant facts are not shirked, where untold stories are brought to light, and where African-American history is positioned not as an ancillary... Uh, did I say that right? Ancillary? Yeah. But utterly central to the history of the U.S., it aims to be a place of reflection and also one of celebration. In practice, it becomes a site of pilgrimage. Mr. Bunch's ambition is to make museums not just places where visitors contemplate the past, but where a future, a better future can be shaped. The history of race relations is the great divisive fault line running through American history. The UK has its own difficult and largely undigested areas of history, notably relating to its imperial and colonial past including its enrichment through the transatlantic slave trade. This legacy has be- has barely begun to be appreciated in its painful complexity. The British have long found is, uh, it fairly easy to sweep the history of slavery under the carpet because, it's relative I- because of its relative invisibility. Plantations themselves being safely out of sight in the Caribbean, there have long been calls for a prominent memorial to the victims of slavery on British soil, 
an artwork with the ambition of, say, Kara Walker's extraordinary sculpture about the transatlantic slave trade currently occupying Tate Modern's Turbine Hall could have real power. But a monument would be no substitute for active engagement and real research, which is why it's so important that the the Bristol University has appointed Olivier Otele to a role as professor of the University of Slavery, of University of Slavery, of the history of slavery, based in the institution's history department and center for Black humanities. Professor Otele, who astoundingly was the first Black woman to be appointed to a chair uh, in history in the UK, when she tr- took up a professorship, a professorship at Bath Spa University last year, will look specifically at Bristol's involvement in the slave trade with a resolve uh, chiming with Mr. Bunch's words. She has, si- she has said that her research must aim to set the standard for the way that Brin, quote, examines, acknowledges, and teaches the history of enslavement, unquote. The work she does with different communities of Bristolians, educators, scholars, and others will, she hopes, quote, contribute to a stronger and fairer society, unquote. Other universities also embracing the moral imperative to examine their and their city's historical involvement in the slave trade. Glasgow has set the pace by establishing up, uh, establishing up a joint research unit with the University of the West Indies, for which it pledges to raise £20 million as a kind of rep- repa- reparative justice after calculating the benefits from slavery by in today's prices between 16.7 million and 998 million. <laughs> Funny how they go for 20 million. That's a, that's a nice even. Yeah, it's a nice middle ground to find. Brilliant. Uh, this summer, the vi- uh, vice chancellor of the University of the West Indies, prefer, uh, Professor Sir Hilary Beckles, uh, praised the initiative as a quote bold moral historic step unquote. These are the first small gestures towards uh, gestures towards Britons finally remembering not only the things. Uh, that they want to remember, but those that they need to remember. So that's it. That's it, its entirety. And um, I just kind of wanted to shout that out and shout, and shout out this moment because I think I put in a, I think it was like in a week where actually where I, where I talked about that Glasgow fund uh, or, or Glasgow raising of twenty million for that uh, for that particular research fund. Um, and it wasn't really touted anywhere else in in, term, in in a detailed sense from from where I lived anyway. But this is a this is a good place to start uh, in terms of education. Now, university is obviously a really good place to start, and I really hope a lot of people apply to that particular. Um, to whatever classes there are as it pertains to slavery in the university in Bristol University University of Bristol um that obviously obviously that's a great start but for me personally I really do think it needs to be taught in state schooling high school maybe not primary school but definitely high school I think primary school is a bit too much <laughs> I wouldn't even know what the fuck to think like in high in primary school but um definitely in high school D- definitely like year nine year eight perfect place them two years can really make a difference i really believe that if 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 slavery was taught in history and colonialism was taught in history in high schools everywhere private and public i think that would do a world of good 
a world of good. And I'm not talking about just showing, you know, 12 Years a Slave or Roots or whatever. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about, like, getting them to read texts from then, from now, documented history. That would be, that would be a really, once it gets there, then some real genuine inroads can be made. But I feel like that's a long, that's a long way away. But for in this particular case, um, shout out to Professor Otelli. This is a great start. And uh, with that, ladies and gentlemen, I'll end it there. Uh, this has been Oscar. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Uh, this has gone by really fast for me. I've, I've, it's been a really fast hour. That's really flown by. Time flies when you're having fun. Um, <laughs> and uh, yes, I hope you enjoyed the episode from the Fifth Member Podcast Network. I've been Charlie Taylor, and this has been what's good. Intro music is Too Much by Vanilla. Interlude music is Vista by Poldor. You can find uh, both of their music pages via Bandcamp in the links uh, in the links below. Shout out to Chill Music, Chill Records for the ability to use these songs. You can also find their band camp in the link in the description below. And yeah, that's pretty much it. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope you all have a great week as per usual. Episode 50 in the bag, ladies and gentlemen. Nice milestone. Shout out to me, because I did it all. <laughs> have a good week, everybody. I'll try and do, always, always try and do the same. And until the next time, take it easy, ladies and gentlemen.